If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! In many ways, it's a cold with a name, and it just happens to be a cold that whacks little babies harder than other colds. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar, and the voice you just heard is that of Dr. Kenneth Alexander, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Nemours Children's Hospital, Orlando. He's referring to respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, one of three respiratory viruses, along with COVID-19 and influenza, that appear to be co-occurring in the population right now. Overwhelming doctors' offices, urgent care providers, and emergency rooms, and taking a particular toll on the pediatric population. On November 29th, the Nemours Community Relations Team put together a webinar featuring Dr. Alexander, along with board certified pediatrician Dr. Maria Petrini from Nemours Children's Health, Delaware. It was moderated by pediatrician Dr. Laura Chilcutt, a policy advisor to the External Affairs Team at Nemours Children's Hospital, Orlando. During the webinar, they opened the chat room to parents pressing questions about each of the triple demic viruses. For example, how they spread, how they are diagnosed, and how they're treated. They also answered some general pediatric medicine questions, such as what constitutes a fever, when and for how long should a sick child stay home from school or daycare, and the role adults play in prevention. Here today, we present highlights from that Q&A, starting with questions about masking. Specifically, is it recommended that masks be worn year-round, or at least during certain peak time of respiratory illness among children and adults? Here's Dr. Kenneth Alexander. That's a tough question. And of mm-hmm. course, there are places in the world where people do wear masks a lot mm-hmm. of the time. If you've traveled at all in, in Japan, uh, you know, Korea, that kind of thing, where there's a lot of crowding, people wear masks. And I think there was a time when we in the West sort of looked at that and thought that was kind of cute, and turns out it works quite well. Mm -hmm. So I think what I would say is, if you're in a situation where you can't afford to be sick, so perhaps you've got a big trip coming up or a family vacation coming up, there is certainly no harm in wearing a mask to, to protect yourself, as long as you also wash your hands. Now, the other rule of the game is, no hassling other people who decide to wear a mask. So the next question has to do with, with schools. So some schools are not requiring masks for some children, especially if the children are siblings of kids who tested positive for COVID. So this has now been left up to parents. So it's one thing when you're not, when everyone at home is healthy, but now if you know that someone is tested positive in the family, I guess the question is, what do we do with this? Is, is this something that the CDC recommends against? Should we be trying to encourage this now? Well, you know, um, I think it's very important if somebody is sick, shouldn't be really attending to school. And I think it just 
if you know, if you continue to follow the CDC recommendations, you know, a child who was diagnosed with COVID should probably stay home at least for five days and wear a mask at home as well. And then if symptoms are resolved and no fever for 24 hours, you know, that particular child can go back to school as long as they can wear a mask for another five days just to make sure it's not going to transmit the virus to other classmates and other people at school. So that is, is in that sense. Now, for somebody that is attending school on a regular basis and has a higher risk of getting sick or would provoke, you know, some degree of complication in family members, it would bring the virus back home. Then again, it, you know, it, it is a personal decision to ask that particular child to wear a mask at school or not. We know the majority of kids at school, they don't wear masks these days <laughs> since the mask mandate was removed, majority of the kids. But, you know, you can see a few of them still doing that either because, again, they don't want to get sick. They don't want to bring the virus home for whatever high-risk situation might be present at home or maybe because they are sick. And maybe not necessarily with COVID. It could be like any other viral infection and they feel like they wear a mask for a few days until they make sure that they're good to go. They don't have more cough, runny nose or anything else. Yeah. You know, I think, I think uh, Maria's made an important point. And that is, remember that we wear masks to prevent us from infecting other people. I don't know. You remember the golden rule, right? To treat others as you'd want to be treated yourself. I think that applies for sending your kid, you know, if you wouldn't want somebody else to send their sick kid to school, don't send your sick kid to school. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's do some RSV questions here. I got a good number of those. I said a couple about um, diagnosis. And I'll kind of just quickly cover that one. So RSV can be diagnosed the same way as COVID, um, same way as flu, is that, that nasal swab that everybody hates. It's not nearly as bad as it used to be. We don't have to jab you in the, in the brain anymore. But it's, it's still <laughs> It's very superficial. And usually right. young kids, they give us the boogers, right? And so you just can get something from there and that's it. <laughs> yeah. I said a couple about um, how long is RSV lasting. I know it's kind of actually changed for us. It used to be five days, right? Now that's, we're seeing it much longer. Um, and then other treatments for, for RSV. So let's start. So I'll talk about duration for a second, because the way to think about it is that there's the acute infection with RSV. And usually your body clears that over about five to six days. But RSV causes injury to your airways. Mm -hmm. And it's not unusual for people that have had RSV to cough for two or three weeks. Absolutely. The lingering cough and the ongoing stuffiness, like congestion, those are the ones that, you know, last the longest. And young infants are... Uh, more likely to wheeze with RSV. So, you know, sometimes the wheezing, the bronchiolitis picture, kind of like the mucus, and that usually takes also like a little bit longer than like older kids. That is more like a common cold, like all upper airway, as Dr. Ken was stating at the beginning of, of his presentation, and then gets better. So, you know, that the younger the child, the longer it might last. Right. I think as far as the treatment, it's all the kind of things that you already just addressed, right? It's the symptomatic care, the suctioning. That's a big thing with RSV. You got a lot of just mucus coming out of the nose, cough it up. It's in the throat. So mm -hmm. suctioning, humidifiers, heat. Another good for any kind of cold as well, right? Yep. So how about kids who are born during the pandemic who haven't been exposed to some of these things? Who are now concerned? Does this mean that they're at risk of more severe infections with RSV or other things? 
I don't think more severe. I, I think we're seeing more of it, Maria, but I don't think we're seeing anything more severe. No, I don't think more severe. Remember at the beginning, we discussed about the exposure. You know, sooner or later, that's going to happen. So I don't think that would really make a difference in terms of severity. But yes, I mean, eventually they will, you know, see the virus and will get sick with it. I think sometimes it just seems more severe if a kid's been healthy for a year and a half. But that's what wasn't normal, right? right? Or sometimes it's one after the other. But that doesn't mean it's all RSV or all, all flu. It's just, you know, being exposed to different viruses will cause different cold symptoms and cough and sore throats and others. It's like they seem not to get a break. A couple of questions about adults. Can adults transmit RSV asymptomatically? So I've had that in the clinic several times recently where kids not going to daycare, parents go to work, but have been healthy. They don't know that they've had any illnesses. And now they're wondering, why is my child sick? Well, that's a really important point because adults do get respiratory syncytial virus. And it's, it's kind of interesting because as I talk to my uh, you know, internal medicine colleagues, they somehow think that this is something new. And yet we in pediatrics have been dealing with respiratory syncytial virus since the virus was discovered. So it's been around a long time. It's nothing new. In many ways, it's a cold with a name. And it just happens to be a cold that whacks little babies harder than other colds. And then for RSV, I know we talked about the um, immunity. It's kind of transient, right? You get the illness, you have some immunity, but then you're probably going to get it again next year. What about getting it in the same season? Could you possibly get it, you think, a few months later, if you go back yeah, to school? I think it's possible. The good news is when you get it again, it's probably not going to be as severe. Exactly, because you have some, hopefully, immunity left. So, yeah. In the end, it's all a boogie knows, most of it. Right. I think we already kind of discussed that RSV and, and bronchiolitis, some questions about kind of the links to, to asthma, whether it causes asthma versus is it just exacerbating asthma? I think there's two parts to that. And there, there is certainly evidence that small babies under six months, if they get severe RSV, and by severe, I mean hospital brand RSV, that those kids are set up because of virus-induced lung injury, that they can wheeze probably five to seven years. They're, they're set up to act like asthmatics. The other side of it is more what Maria sees, which is the kid who's got asthma, and then RSV acts as a trigger. As any other virus, like all like viral infections, as you know, can trigger asthma. So it's one of the most common triggers for asthma. It's a, you know, upper respiratory infection. Let me go to some, some COVID-19 questions, make sure you cover a little bit of those. Let's see. So so concerned about MISE, so children testing positive for COVID, what do we need to look for? And, and, and at what point do we need to look for symptoms of MISE? Is this something that we need to really be watching for? So that's a really, really good question. What is MISC? So it stands for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And by children, they mean anybody under 21. So the way to think about it is this. You may see that when adults get COVID, the first week it acts just like any cruddy viral infection, viral pneumonia, and they can be sick. But then for reasons not well understood, in week two, it's almost like somebody takes that adult's immune system and drives, it's like driving 60 miles an hour in first gear. It's their immune system is just completely revved up almost to the point of self-destruction. And that's when adults, it's when we see COVID mortality. So in kids, they separate 
the acute phase from the inflammatory phase. And in fact, in most kids, that second inflammatory phase doesn't really occur. But when it does occur, it happens weeks to months later. Now, if you can explain why it happens, we'll get you a Nobel Prize. Uh, nobody really knows, but we know how to diagnose it and we know how to treat it. And the good news here is that MISC is, first of all, it's uncommon, right? About three quarters, 80% of kids have had uh, had COVID now, but most of them have not had MISC. The kids that are at risk for MISC tend to be the older kids, the teenagers, kids that are overweight. And if you can explain why, I'll get you in the National Academy of Sciences, but African-American and Hispanic kids seem to be at higher risk of MISC. What to look for? If you've got a teenager, what you're looking for is persistent fever. So temperatures, and it's usually 102, 103, mm-hmm. a lot of abdominal pain, and they just tend to be sick. They've got joint pain, muscle pain. You know, these kids tell you their hair hurts. Uh, Everything's miserable, but a lot of it is abdominal pain. Uh, The first COVID cases we saw down here, the kids were actually being evaluated first for, or MISC cases, rather. Kids were being evaluated for possible appendicitis. So it gives you a sense of what kind of abdominal pain you're dealing with. And I can tell you that you know, in, in our hospital, we've not seen any fatal cases of MISC. You know, I don't know what your experience is, Dr. Kim, but uh, I feel like since we had the uh, COVID vaccine available, the cases of MISC that we've seen in the hospital had really decreased for vaccinated kids. While we're on that topic, so we'll just go to the COVID-19. So what do we look for there? So if you have a kid who you know you've been exposed to, maybe like their friend has COVID, just tested positive. What do we need to watch for in the, the children and our children that have been exposed to, to see whether we think that they've got COVID or to get them tested? So usually for close exposure, like you just need to, you know, keep an eye on them and just make sure that they don't develop like any cold symptoms, which would be the most common manifestation of, of COVID-19. And usually the recommendations by day of five after the contact. So, you know, day zero, the day of the contact. So by five days, get them tested. And if that test is negative, but pretty sure, you know, it's pretty convincing evidence that most likely out of the woods did not get. And generally, if they do develop symptoms, like five days is kind of what we're sticking with as well exactly. for the, the isolation too. Kind of, if they develop yeah. symptoms, yeah. five days, as long as they have no fevers of 100.4 or more for 24 hours, they can go back to, to school or daycare. Some people are asking about how long the viruses can stay on, on surfaces, what kind of things, especially with, with RSV. You have a kid who's tested RSV positive. What do we need to be doing at home to try to keep that that home clean to prevent everybody else in the home getting it? So it's tough. There's a great story about how RSV was demonstrated to be transmitted. And what it boils down to is it takes physical contact with the child or the child getting respiratory secretions onto a, a surface. So if you've got a baby with RSV and you want to get RSV, give them a kiss. Uh, if you don't want to get RSV, well, you you don't pick up your kid, but we can't really do that. So what do you do? You wash your hands, right? Anytime you touch any possible exposed surface, how long will the virus last on a surface? Well, it depends on the virus, but certainly six to 12 hours is not unreasonable for, for most viruses. But the big thing you can do, wash your hands, 
right? Avoid other people's respiratory secretions. And then so another kind of general pediatric question, um, fevers, how high is, is too high? So we have a kid who comes in with a fever of 104 or is at home with a fever of 103, 104. Do we do anything differently with that compared to, say, any of the other type fevers? We don't. We just treat like the same way. It could be that, you know, for high fever, like 103, 104, then some, you know, degree of antipyretic might be needed just because you just don't feel good. <laughs> like, you know, you feel miserable with that degree of fever. So, yes, highly recommended just to use ibuprofen for older kids over six months of age, younger kids, Tylenol. Uh, or acetaminophen, same thing. Um, and, and, and again, uh, a, a warm look bath, lots of hydration, lots of rest and, and wait until they get better. Yeah. I think that's an important point. We treat fevers to make you feel better, not because right. the fever is causing you harm. Right. The fever is the response, like, you know, the organism is, is kind of fighting against the virus and that's what the fever translate into. So, you know, if, if somebody is like, I don't know, like your child is like 101 and just running around and being happy, you don't, there's no need to treat that. But of course, like 104, being miserable in bed and cranky and, and not able to drink or eat anything, lack of energy, like it hurts, like muscle hurts, everything hurts, just it's, it's fine to treat. So there are a couple of questions about influenza. The first one is just, what do we think of the influenza vaccine this year and how accurate do we think this is and really so that's always an important question, and it's it's a little early to tell, but just to remind people, remember that there's actually two kinds of influenza, flu A and flu B. Flu B is pretty stable. Flu A is, uh, it keeps changing its wardrobe. It's, it's a little bit like Carmen Sandiego, right? One year it changes its hat, the next year it changes its jacket, and it keeps changing its wardrobe. And the way you make a flu vaccine is you try and guess what Carmen Sandiego is going to be wearing next winter. And sometimes you're good at that guess, and sometimes you're not so good at that guess. On average, flu vaccines run between 40 and 60% effective for keeping people from getting severe influenza. So that's pretty good, right? It reduces it by at least 50%. A little early to tell right now, but I think we're going to come in right around 50% this year. And then another question about um, if you originally had the flu, how long do you need to wait before getting the flu vaccine? Don't really have to wait at all. Where the waiting comes from was there was some belief that if you gave two tetanus shots too close to each other, you'd get a real sore arm. But getting flu and then getting a, a flu vaccine in five minutes is fine by me. That's pretty much for any vaccine, right? Like kids come in, even with a, a mild cold, that's still a great opportunity to vaccinate a child who missed a shot for some reason. And Laura, and another common question that I usually have in the office, I'm not sure is, is part of the questions that you may have in there, is like if, if vaccines can be given at the same time and the answer for that is yes for both flu and COVID. Well, and in the same vein. So how about this one, Maria? If a parent says to you, if my kid has a cold, can they get vaccinated? Yes, of course they can. Yeah, having a cold or having my symptoms, even low-grade fever is not a reason not to get vaccinated. So we really encourage everybody to not to miss the opportunity to get that vaccine. Right. And I do want to point out, too, that, that for fever for us is 100.4. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people will come in, the child's at 99.7, going up a little bit. And, and yes, that, that may indicate the child's going to spike a fever. But for us, it's maybe why when you bring your child into the pediatrician's office, we're kind of like, eh. Because it's not until 100.4 are you really considered having a fever. So 
that's important too to note. When you have to keep your kid out of school until they've had no fever for 24 hours, that means no 100.4 or higher for 24 hours. So that 99, it's a little warm, but that's okay. That's part of the viral process. That's part of your immune system fighting off that illness. So we have to wrap up with a couple, couple last questions. One big one has been, how do you prevent colds from turning into pneumonia or other kinds of, of worse infections? So how do you prevent that viral illness from becoming the bacterial illness where you need the antibiotics? So the, the good news there is that actually doesn't happen very often. Uh, a cold turning into pneumonia is something that you tend to see mostly in adults and typically following influenza. Developing bacterial following a viral pneumonia in children is actually quite rare. But what would it look like? The kid would start to get better and then they get sick again Mm -hmm. and they have symptoms, they run fever and they have respiratory distress, uh, much as Maria described it, where the kid's having trouble breathing. So what I would avoid is people saying, well, I'm going to put this child on antibiotics just in case they might get a bacterial infection. No, that, that doesn't make one bit of difference. And all it does is you end up with a kid with a cold and diarrhea. Yeah, we see those a lot, right? They come in, they're very concerned, they want antibiotics and trying to convince a nervous parent. I mean, it's understandable, uh, especially when the kids have been sick with sequential illnesses. That happens a lot. We see them coming in, they get one illness, they get a little better, and then right away get sick again. And trying to explain that this is not a actual infection. This is unfortunately just cold after cold. So women who are pregnant, if they get flu vaccine, they get the COVID vaccine, all those kinds of preventative things, how does this help to protect their, their newborns? When a, you know, what a mother is suspecting and, and gets vaccinated, what they do is what the body does actually creates antibodies. And the antibodies, a particular type of antibody with the IgG, goes actually through the placenta and gets to the baby that is, you know, is, is being like warm there in the uterus. So it gives what we call passive immunity. In other words, the fact that the mom was vaccinated is actually protecting the, the newborn and the infant to come. I think the other part of it is you'll hear this term cocoon immunization. So if the you know babies themselves don't respond well to flu vaccine before the age of six months. So if we can't protect the baby directly, let's immunize the people around that care for that baby, the parents, the grandparents, the siblings, the daycare providers, and that kind of thing. And not to mention about breastfeeding too, those mothers that they elect or they're able to provide with breast milk throughout the first, you know, few months of life, they're also protecting their children to, you know, prevent certain, certain diseases, particularly when they're not able to get the vaccine yet. Dr. Maria Petrini is a board-certified pediatrician with Nemours Children's Health and medical director of the Delaware Children's Health Network. She was answering parents' questions about the triple-demic, and she was joined in doing so by her colleague, Dr. Kenneth Alexander, chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Nemours Children's Hospital in Orlando. Their conversation is part of a Nemours webinar conducted on the topic on November 29, 2022, moderated by Nemours pediatrician, Dr. Laura Chilcutt. We're looking ahead to 2023 here on the podcast, and we'd love to hear from you about what you'd like to hear on the podcast in the future. Email your feedback or suggestions to podcast at Nemours.org. That's podcast at Nemours.org. Thanks, as always, to our production team, Cheryl Munn, Che Parker, and Rachel Salas-Silverman. Special thanks this week to Peggy and Peggy, Parrish, and Carter for providing the webinar audio. 
Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. You may find the podcast on Nemours Net and the Nemours Now app, anywhere you find your other favorite podcasts, and by telling your smart speaker to play the Champions for Children podcast. On behalf of Drs. Maria Petrini, Laura Chilcutt, and Kenneth Alexander, I'm Carol Vassar. And we thank you for listening to this edition of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, please stay safe, stay well, and thank you, as always, for all that you do for the children and families we serve.